Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. Um, today, we are beginning a new series. Uh, we are actually joining in with the rest of the vineyard movement in the United States, all doing a series together, which is actually the first time that we've ever done this together uh, in the vineyard. And so we are going to spend the next few weeks from basically Easter all the way through Pentecost uh, talking about the Holy Spirit. And this is a, a series called Empowered. And our hope for this series is not so much that we would spend time each morning building out a more robust theology of the Holy Spirit or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but our aim is that everyone who is here would experience and encounter the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a force or an energy or a power that we access. He is a person that we have relationship with. And the Holy Spirit is described in the Bible as God's uh, empowering presence and, our person, and a personal empowering presence. And so when we ask for more of the Holy Spirit, we're not asking for more energy or more power. We are asking for deeper relationship with God. We're asking for an experience of the presence of God. And so that's what we're going to be doing for the next several weeks. I'm really glad that you're here for the journey. And today's sermon, I think, at least for me, is probably one of the most important ones in our series. This morning, we are going to talk about how the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit's role is to reveal God's heart to people. In the first chapter of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul prays for the church, and he says that he prays that, that we would receive a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we could experience more fully who he is, know more fully who we are, and understand more completely how he, who he is and who we are collide together in this beautiful relationship. And so the question that we're, we're exploring uh, is what does the revealer, the Holy Spirit, what does the revealer want to reveal to us? What does the Spirit of God want to say to you? And full confession, today's sermon is, based, is pretty much just for me, okay? So you can listen in if you'd like, but I'm preaching to myself and other full confession, every week that we do this series, we are going to um, carve out time at the end really focused on stepping in and responding to what the Spirit of God is doing. So at the end of the sermon, I'm going to ask you to do stuff. We're going to do it together, okay? Okay, that's a tepid response, but we're going to do it. Um, I'm a millennial. Any millennials in the house? I'm a millennial. Millennials, awesome. Uh, this weekend, I spent time with a group of pastors in Montana. They were all uh, baby boomers, and I don't know what's beyond a baby boomer, but they were up there. And I was talking with one guy who, uh, who kept talking about all of these, like, millennials in high school. And I was like, hey, man, millennials aren't in high school. Millennials are approaching their 40s. 40s. Okay. And our generation as millennials, we have a reputation, or at least we did 10 years ago, of being emotionally coddled and overly affirmed. Like the joke that was being said all the time was that we were like the generation of participation trophies. You guys remember that? To which my response is, that's just bad parenting, right? <laughs> Nobody asked for participation trophies. And despite, <laughs> okay, let's rein it back in. Coming in a little hot. Boomers, man. Okay. Yet, despite 
all the affirmation that we've received, we're still somehow a generation that is racked with anxiety and depression. And we're seeing now that the younger generations after millennials are even more racked with anxiety and depression and mental illness. So the question that's in my mind is how in the world can we have generations that are so affirmed, that are so em supposedly emotionally coddled, and yet somehow be so lost, so confused, so fearful of who they are. And I believe that most of our misery and our anxiety comes from trying to prove ourselves to the world that I am enough, that I am worthy of love. And this is not limited to just younger people. This is all of us. Deep in our souls, we all, we have a, a need to feel loved or wanted, to feel like we are enough. And I think that this is one of the hardest things for us to believe about ourselves. And so this inner ache, it drives us in all kinds of different directions. We look to fulfill this ache in all kinds of ways. We, we strive for acceptance and affirmation through careerism. If I could only get that promotion or if I can make a certain amount of money, then I'll finally know that I am enough. Or we look through this affirmation through relationships, or we put our worth in our body, in beauty or fitness, or the way that we dress, or knowing and appreciating and liking the right kinds of cool things, or the number of followers that we have on social media, and all hoping that some person or something or some metric will tell us that we finally arrived, that we are enough, that we are now worthy of love. This is what drives many of us. The need to be enough is what drives people often compulsively towards success. The inner restlessness is our motivation to achieve. And our society is sick. It celebrates people who are like hyper compulsive, who are searching for meaning and love in acting or music or invention or career or sports or whatever it is that merits the praise of people. And at the same time, we all are aware that this doesn't work. Like we all, we, we hear the stories of these celebrities, these famous people who tragically end their lives like Anthony Bourdain or, or Robin Williams and we look and we hear the cry of their heart that they were like pining for some kind of recognition, some kind of worthiness, some kind of love and they never received it and that they died tragically and we all know that we will never be able to find it through these, these ways. In fact, it's said that the emptiest day of your life is the day or two after you finally achieve the thing that you were counting on to satisfy the ache in your soul. Realize that it never really fixed anything. We long for meaning and for significance. We long to hear someone affirm us, to say that we are enough, to say that we are worthy of love. And this affirmation that we are all looking for, it actually occurs in Mark chapter 1, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, right on the banks of the Jordan River. The story is that Jesus is just beginning his public ministry. Um, Jesus was born and raised in obscurity in a small town to a totally unimportant family. And, and Jesus, even though he comes from nowhere and comes from a family that are nobodies, he doesn't come with a chip on his shoulder like he has to prove anything. In fact, uh, he, he, doesn't, he, he knows that he doesn't need to show that he is worthy of anybody's attention or affection. And Mark chapter 1 opens with this story 
not, uh, not about Jesus, but actually of a guy named John, who is baptizing people out in the wilderness by the Jordan River. And in verse 7, John makes this, strange, this, this strong and strange proclamation. He says this, and this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then look what happens next. Jesus arrives on the scene to the water, and he steps into the water and walks toward his cousin John, who is baptizing all of the followers. And John, he has this, you know, resistance. I, don't, I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. But, but Jesus says, no, let's do it. And so John baptizes him in the water. And look what happens next. In verse 10, it says, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. It says that Jesus comes up out of the water and that the heavens are torn open and that the spirit of God descends like a dove. Not like a literal dove. That would be really weird. But descends on him like a dove and then the, when the Spirit rests on him, he imparts to Jesus an identity. He's, the voice of God says, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And in this moment, Jesus is given an identity that will frame the rest of his life and ministry. That everything that Jesus does for the rest of uh, all of the stories in the Gospels, it flows right here from this experience. God publicly and personally pours out his love and affirmation on his son. And notice that Jesus doesn't do anything to deserve it. He has done nothing to deserve the Father's love. This is the first page of Jesus' ministry. According to Mark's gospel, he hasn't preached any killer sermons. He hasn't healed any sick people or cast out any demons. He hasn't gone to the cross to pay for the sins of the world. Jesus has done nothing that we would recognize as earning the love of God. But yet, identity and love and acceptance are given to him. It's all a gift from the Father and this isn't just self-talk. He's not looking into the mirror saying Stuart Smalley affirmations. It's not posing, as, uh, like doing a superhero pose because of what he saw in a TED Talk. Jesus receives from the Lord, and then he lives from that place, not for that place. He lives, he lives from being the beloved of God, not for becoming the beloved of God. It's just receiving. And this is so intimate and so personal. And even though a crowd is surrounding him, the statement is addressed not to the crowd. It's actually addressed to Jesus himself. The voice of God is not spoken to the people gathered saying, you know, look, look, this is my son. No, it's directly to Jesus. The voice says, you are my beloved son. It's a personal encounter. It's a personal affirmation. And Jesus needed the Father, the Father's voice, to speak this truth into his heart. So how does the Father make known his love for Jesus? How does he impart this affirmation from Jesus? Any, any guesses? By the Holy Spirit. 
by the Holy Spirit of God. When the Father wants to give Jesus an identity to pour out his love on his Son, we see here in this moment that he does it by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit descends on Jesus and is the personal presence and the voice of the Father declaring the Father's love. This is what the Spirit does, not just for Jesus, but this is what he does for every single one of us. This is what we read the Apostle Paul writing in Romans 5. He says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And I want to pause on that verse. This verse has gotten a hold of my heart in a really unique way over the last year or so. Because being a church that leans into the charismatic, believes in the power of the Holy Spirit, wants to be activated and used and called and sent and all the language that we, that we use, we often skip right past what is the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit. The primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is to reveal to us the love of God. The primary activity that the Spirit of God does in our lives is not to heal the sick or to empower us to preach the gospel, though he does that and we celebrate it. The thing that we read, that the Bible says that the Spirit of God came to do is to reveal to us that we are the beloved of God. The love of the Father is poured out through the Holy Spirit. This is how God expresses his love to us. This is how we experience and feel and know the affirmation, the pleasure of God by the Holy Spirit. And it's important that we, when we come to this, we, re we recognize this is not some doctrinal statement. This is not cold truth. This is personal. Because you don't need a preacher or a book to tell you this. You need God to tell you this. You might know that God loves you somewhere in your mind. You might have even let that truth become something that you can speak over other people. But have you experienced that love? Have you encountered the personal affirmation of the Father calling you his beloved son or daughter? Do you know this deep down from experience? The language of the Bible says that God loves you like a father or a mother loves their child. Have you ever been around a new dad? Like right after they have their first kid? Dads are so cliche and insufferable. It's always the same thing. I never knew I could love someone like this. I never knew that, oh, it's like, you guys, you don't even know like how much I love this kid. Like I would take a bullet for this kid, which always begs the question, why is somebody shooting at your kid? <laughs> and as cliche as those words are, they are so true. I mean, have you spent time with Wes McLaughlin? It's like obnoxious right now. <laughs> Mark my words. I think he preaches like two more times while I'm on sabbatical. I want somebody to tally the number of times he says like, I'm a new dad. And like, I didn't know that God loved me until I became a dad. Love you, buddy. <laughs> Sorry, man. I did the same thing. This is 2016. Go back and re watch the archives. <laughs> Go ask Wes and Irene about their daughter, Amelia, and you'll see the way that they feel about her. Go ask Ted and Osley about August, and you will hear something deep inside of them. Ask Alex and Waverly about their boys, and you will experience something that is bigger than just head knowledge. It is an experience of the love 
Parents gush over their kids, and that is what the Bible says that God does over his children, except even more. Jesus said that if you who are evil, meaning if you who are fallen and broken and finite, if you know how to love your kids and give them good gifts, how much more does the Father love you as his child and give you the Holy Spirit? The way that God loves us is by giving us his Spirit. We cannot understand or experience the love of God, this incomprehensible reality, unless the Holy Spirit mediates it to us. The Spirit makes the love of the Father real and accessible and experienceable, which is why in Ephesians chapter 3, again, the Apostle Paul, he's praying over his church, and he says, I pray for you that you would have strength to comprehend with all the Lord's people what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Listen to that. He says four dimensions, breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He says, I'm going to give you, I'm praying that you would understand something that is utterly incomprehensible. How? By the Holy Spirit. You see, the love of God was never meant to be merely a truth to accept. Romans chapter 5 says that it is something he pours out into our hearts so that we can encounter it ourselves. And the work of the Spirit in pouring out this love is to initiate two cries in our soul. The first cry that comes from the Spirit of God is that Jesus is Lord. In 1 Corinthians 12, 3, it says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so the first work of the Spirit, of the Spirit in our lives is to bring us into a saving knowledge of the gospel, where we say in faith that Jesus is Lord of my life. And it might take years to get there. Or it might happen suddenly in a moment as the Spirit just sort of quickens your heart to respond to him. But, but this, is, this is the first cry. He's, he initiates a cry of saying, I need salvation. Here's my life. It's yours. But then there is a second cry that the Spirit initiates, and it's this. It's one of sonship. It's the cry to God as our Father. In Galatians chapter 4, we read, Because you are his sons... God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. This word, Abba, is not just like a 1970s disco band. It's a deeply familiar word for father. It, it's more literally translated as daddy or papa. It's a word that evokes intimacy and the Spirit affirms in us a relationship with God that is so personal and intimate that he leads us to cry, Papa, Daddy. And again, this is not a doctrine that we understand in our head. The Spirit actually is initiating this cry in our hearts. It's a relationship to experience. This is what the Spirit of God does. Now, there, there's a teaching that, is, uh, that, that, that I believed for years that said that when the Father looks at me, he only see, sees Jesus and he doesn't see me. That th this is what the Bible means when it says that we are found to be in Christ. And this is a really defective way of talking about the doctrine of imputed righteousness. You see, the truth, the profound truth that the Bible teaches us is that the Spirit of God lives in you so that Christ's righteous record is given to you. God no longer relates to you according to your fallenness, your brokenness, and your sin, but he relates to you in the perfection of his Son. 
But you see, the Spirit of God isn't given to us to just put a Jesus filter over our lives in order that we might finally be lovable. The Spirit is actually given to you because God already loves you, and that Jesus' imputed righteousness is given to you not so that you will be lovable, but because you already are deeply loved by God. Jesus, didn't, Jesus went to the cross for your sins because God loved you. It's important that each of us understand, you are not the annoying neighbor kid that Jesus keeps bringing over to the house that the father tolerates because he loves his son, Jesus. You are not the girlfriend or boyfriend that Jesus keeps bringing around that the father disapproves of but puts up with. You are not the son-in-law or the daughter-in-law that Jesus married into the family, but the father already secretly knows that you're not good enough for his son. John 3.16 says that God so loved us that he sent his son to die for us so that we might experience life with him forever. And that is true love. My friends, here's what the Spirit of God wants you to know. God sees you. God loves you. He love you, loves you so much that he gives you the Holy Spirit to dwell on the inside of you, to remind you again and again of the love of the Father for you. And this is what we read in Romans chapter 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is a big statement. I think that this might be the greatest paragraph in the Bible, which means it's the greatest paragraph ever written. This, this deeply impacts me. The spirit that you received does not make you a slave to God so that you live in fear. The relationship that we have with God is not one of fear of stepping out of line or fear of doing it wrong. He's not a cruel taskmaster who is always watching and waiting to crush you whenever you step out of line. And, and th this is important to know. If you feel like you relate to God in that, that, me that way of fear, that's not from the Holy Spirit. If God is scary and you feel like you're living under the threat of punishment all the time, that doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. Rather, through the Spirit of God, we have received adoption as sons. This is adoption language. And let me tell you that this idea of adoption is way better than you even think. In the first century, in Rome, in Roman society, the firstborn had all of the status in the family and would inherit most of the family's property, the business, the house, all of it. And rightfully so. As an oldest child, like, that just makes <laughs> sense. But if the family chose to adopt the status of the adopted son would trump the birthright because a family who had property and businesses and things like that, 
you, they might end up having a, a firstborn son who's not worthy. Video games or he's smoking pot on the weekends. He's just not living up to what the family desires. So instead, what, you, what they would do in Roman society is they would adopt a cousin into the family or, or you know, a, a trusted, beloved other uh, young man into the family and that that person would then become the heir and they would give everything to him. And in first century Roman society, you could disown a son, but it was illegal to disown an adopted son. Once he's adopted, he is fully in the family forever. This adoption language is profound. The Spirit does a work in us whereby we become heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Which means this. This is what the adoption language means. Everything that the Father has given to Jesus is being poured out on little old you. The magnitude of God's love for his son Jesus is the magnitude of his love for you. And the evidence of this sonship is that the Holy Spirit begins to put in us a cry that we don't just relate to him as a benefactor or a master, but that we call him Abba, Father. We have the same depth of relationship with God that Jesus did. We can call him Papa or Daddy. Now, if that language makes you feel uncomfortable, I get it. There's all kinds of reasons. Maybe for you, the word Father doesn't inspire love or security or acceptance. Maybe the language of a father reminds you of, of feelings of fear or anger. Maybe your father was a bad rep representation of Father God. Or maybe this daddy, daddy God language doesn't work for you because it just feels too touchy-feely. Trust me, I get that. I'm probably with you. And some here just might not have an emotional personality, you know? Like maybe you just, you just don't feel like, you know, the, the, the big emotions and feelings. You're more of just sort of a steady eddy. Or there are others in here who, who are maybe neurodivergent. And all of this language just puts an, an obligation on you to try to feel something that you feel like you can't quite access. And whatever your circumstances, this language is still an invitation to draw out an emotional reaction because it is experiential language. It's intimacy. Do you know Abba or do you just know about God? And calling God Abba was unheard of in, uh, among God's people in the Old Testament. The, the Jewish people would refer to him as Adonai or Yahweh, or in some sects of Judaism, they won't even say that. They'll just say Hashem, which literally means the name, because they don't want to accidentally take God's holy name in vain. And this was, this was a way of referring to God that gave him respect but didn't have intimacy. But the Holy Spirit puts a cry in our hearts. And the Bible says that this cry is a deep and passionate cry. It's not small or passive. It's not cold truth. It's not God loves me. God loves me. It's God loves me. God loves me. Have you had the kind of experience where those words move from being an interesting idea to actually becoming an experienced reality, an inner cry? When Jesus calls God Abba Father, he wants you to know what kind of father God is. And so he tells a story in Luke chapter 15 of a father who had two sons. It's a really, really famous story. 
And one of these sons, the younger, goes to the father and demands his inheritance right now, which is the ultimate sign of disdain and disrespect. It's like the son going to the father and saying, I wish you were dead. I want nothing to do with you. Give me my inheritance. I'm out of here. And so the son takes his inheritance to a far-off land, and he squanders it on all the kind of things that you would chase if you wanted to get back at your dad. And after he had blown all of his family's fortune, he woke up starving, eating with pigs, which was like the lowest thing that a Jewish audience could imagine a young man doing. He thinks to himself, if I could just go home, maybe I could be a servant in the house of my father. Maybe I could just be a slave. Like, there's no way that I could ever be a son again. I rejected that. But maybe, just maybe, he'll let me survive as a servant. So he walks all the way back home, rehearsing the speech that he's going to give to his dad. You see, this return of his to his family's house was not motivated by love. It was motivated by hunger. It was motivated by desperation. He's probably scared to death to return to the house, but he's even more afraid of starving. And it says that while he was a long way off, the father sees him and begins to run to him. On this day, he sees him way out in the distance, and the father doesn't wait for him to make it all the way home. He runs to where he's at. Now imagine you're the son, and you see your dad running at you. You have already squandered the family's wealth. The question is, is the father running at you, or is he running to you? And the father runs to his son, And before the son even has a chance to explain himself, the father wraps him up in an embrace. He puts a robe on his back. He puts a ring on his finger, which is a symbol of sonship, of being restored as an heir. He tells the the servants of the house to prepare a feast to celebrate because his beloved son was finally home. In Romans 8 language, the son is returning with a spirit of fear and slavery but is instead restored to sonship by Abba. There is nothing in your life that can disqualify you from the love of the Father. He stands on the porch waiting to see you out on the horizon, and when he sees you, the Bible says that he runs to you. He opens the special bottle of wine that he has been aging. He cuts the wedding cake. He throws a party to celebrate you. That's what kind of love the father extends to us. But the story doesn't end there. The father, it says that the father had two sons and the other son sat outside of the party bitterly and frustrated because he felt that he had done everything right. Where was his party? He he actually accuses the father. He says, I've done everything and you wouldn't even give me a goat to go celebrate with my friends. And yet here you are wasting our, our, all of our resources celebrating this son of yours. You see, this son also didn't understand the heart of the father. Even though he remained in the family, he hadn't experienced the heart of Abba. And the father looks at his other son and says to him, everything that I have is yours. You are my beloved son. Come and celebrate with joy the great love that I have for both of my sons. Both of these sons, they lived with an orphan spirit. One believed that he was never going to be worthy of anything but being a servant and a slave because he had done too much and was always going to be rejected by God. 
The other son believed that he could live a life of obligation and that was enough and it was just good to be part of the family. And neither of them had experienced the heart or the, the, the spirit of adoption. And maybe that's you. Maybe this morning you feel like you're this younger brother and you have way too much baggage in your past and God couldn't actually love me. And the Bible could not be more clear. It says that he already has. He's loved you from before you were born and all he wants to do is to wrap a robe around you, put a ring on your finger and call you his son or his daughter. Or maybe you're the older brother and you feel like you've never done anything wrong and you do all of the religious stuff but you still have yet to experience the heart of the father for you. And the invitation for both is to come and receive because the party is happening for you. I'm going to invite Carly and Maggie, I guess, to come on up and help lead ministry time. <laughs> and Josh, if you want to come on up as well. Maybe you're coming in this morning and you are just exhausted from striving, working for the validation that you are enough. You may not even be in touch with what it is that is motivating, motivating you to push and try and strive. Jesus is inviting you to lay this burden down at the cross and to just receive the affirmation of God. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you just feel numb. Like when, whenever that inner ache starts to surface in you, you just dull it down through comforts and distractions and you just temporarily soothe yourself so you don't have to feel that ache. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is wanting to draw that ache to the surface because he wants to pour out the Father's love in you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been a Christian for a while and you just haven't experienced it. You just settled for very little. Did you know that God doesn't just, uh, doesn't just dole out little drops of love because he needs to measure it out to each person? 1 John 3 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. God wants to lavish his great love on his children. And if you have not experienced that, God wants to give that to you this morning. Good? So can I be honest with you guys this morning? Did you know that you can do great things, even pretty good ministry things, while feeling totally empty in your soul and not having that, that sort of deep love of God sort of just oozing out of you. Like I mentioned at the beginning of this message, today's sermon is for me. I hope you liked it. <laughs> and so for me, I, I'm coming in here this morning after what was a really great and really exhausting weekend. Um, I, I, like I mentioned, I went to Montana. I was hanging out with a bunch of vineyard pastors. And I got to share the gospel with somebody on the plane, talk about Jesus. I got to invite a couple of people on the plane to come, come to our church and tell them about what we were doing and tell them what I was getting ready to preach, that they are loved by God. Uh, I got to pray for a, a, an agnostic Jewish couple who were expecting their first child. I got to pray a blessing over them. I got to pray and prophesy over vineyard leaders who were experiencing deep levels of burnout. And it was awesome. And the Spirit of God was working through me all through the weekend. And then yesterday, I sat in the Denver airport and I was looking over my notes that I was going to be preaching this morning. And I was feeling deeply empty and exhausted. Even after all the good things that had happened, I felt done. 
And I had this orphan spirit. And while I was reading my notes again, I had this moment where it felt like the Holy Spirit just started to like dribble a little bit of the love of God into my body, like liquid love. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about when I say liquid love? It's kind of weird, but it's pretty awesome. And it was so good. And do you know how I responded? I immediately shut it down. Because I'm in an airport, because I'm tired, because I'm busy, I gotta get some stuff done. That, those were the excuses that ran through my mind. But last night at two in the morning, as I'm just laying awake in my exhaustion and in my anxiety, I felt like the Lord said, you didn't shut it down because you were too busy. You, were sh you shut it down because you were terrified about feeling that ache again. And so I shut it down. My friends, here's the message God gave me at two in the morning. We have to receive the revelation of the Father's heart for us. The Bible says that Jesus lived from this. Everything that he did started with God saying, you're my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. How can we expect to live from anything else? How are we going to expect to get through this on our own? So will you stand with me?